Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are here with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, Christmas is closing in very quickly. I understand you have a topic that will go very well with this holiday. Well, I certainly hope so. I thought we would look to the Persian Empire and their legal system, because out of that, we're going to see a group of people that play a very important part in the story of Christmas itself, specifically the Magi or the wise men of the East. You know, we look to the Persian Empire and we think of them as a Middle Eastern people, the predecessors of the Parsi and now of the Iranians. And we don't realize that really the Persians were a lot different from the rest of the Middle East. Most of the rest of the Middle East is a Semitic people. Until when you get down to Egypt, and there it is more Hamitic or more African. But the Persians, on the other hand, were probably a Japhetic people, and they would be part of the Indo-European migration. You know, according to anthropologists and so on, somewhere around 2000 B.C., there was an Indo-European migration, people that migrated out of the Caucasus Mountains, that's why they're referred to as Caucasians, and migrated in various directions. Some went to the north and became the Scandinavians, some to the west and became the Germans, and others to the west that became the Celtic people, others the Greeks, the Romans, and still others went to the southeast instead of to the west and became the Brahmin caste of India, and some went south to Iran and became the Persians. And so they are an Indo-European people. Their language is very different from other Middle Eastern languages. Their views of government were different. Their views of religion were, at least at first, quite different as well. In their view of government, the Persians would believe that there is one God, and therefore government officials are not gods. They are ordained by God, but they are not gods themselves. They speak for God, but they do not themselves have divine authority. They have a judicial system. There was a remarkable system. It was a system of many levels of appeal. In fact, this may be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective, but they had lawyers in abundance in Persia, and getting a career in the judiciary was considered to be a very, very coveted thing to gain. They had multi-levels of appeal in their justice system, and you could go all the way up to the king himself, although he usually had delegated that out to other people. And very strict rules of ethics. Judges held office for life unless they were removed for misconduct. But remarkable system in many ways. As I say, the kings were not gods, but they were considered to have been chosen by God. Now, here's another thing that makes the Persians different from the Egyptians. 
Now, the Egyptians were a very stable society, but also in many ways a mediocre society. The king, there was no question about who was going to succeed as king. It was the oldest son, with a few exceptions, the oldest son was always going to succeed as the next king, even if he was an idiot. And some of them were. In Persia, the king was to be of the royal family, but wasn't necessarily clear that it was going to be the oldest son, although he probably had the inside track. Now, one of the results, you have thousands of years of mediocrity in Egypt, but at the same time, you have stability. You look to all the nations that have risen and fallen in the Middle East, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans. The Egyptians have been subservient to all of them, but they're still here when all the others are gone. Stability. Now, the Persians, you could say, had an excellence in many ways that the Egyptians would not, but they also had a lot of instability. In fact, Durant goes through a little description of what things were like in the days of the Persian Empire, especially the later days. He says, only the records of Rome after Tiberius could rival in bloodiness the royal annals of Persia. We'll be talking about Rome after Tiberius a little later today. The murderer of Xerxes was murdered by Artaxerxes I, who after a long reign was succeeded by Xerxes II, who was murdered a few weeks later by his half-brother Zogdianus, who was murdered six months later by Darius II, who suppressed the revolt of Teratokmes by having him slain, his wife cut into pieces, and his mother, brothers, and sisters buried alive. Darius II was followed by his son Artaxerxes II, who at the Battle of Canoxa had to fight to the death his own brother, the younger Cyrus, when the youth tried to seize the royal power. Artaxerxes enjoyed a long reign, killed his own son Darius for conspiracy, and died of a broken heart on finding that another son, Achus, was planning to assassinate him. Achus ruled for 20 years and was poisoned by his general Bagoas, and, and so on and so on. And anyway, so it's an interesting system of government. Now, one of the things, this ties in a lot with Persian religion, because unlike the others in the Middle East, except for the Hebrews, who were polytheists, worshiping many gods, the Persians, much like the Hebrews, believed in one god, but also believed in one devil. Now, this one god, who they would call Ahura Mazda, this one god was a god of righteousness, a god of goodness, and the devil was a god of darkness and evil. Now, unlike Christian thought, in which we believe that God has created all things, including Lucifer, and that Lucifer rebelled against God, but Lucifer, while he's very powerful, far more powerful than we are, his power is nothing compared to God. God can trust and trust Satan with a flick of his finger or just speaking the word. But in Persian dualist thought, the Zoroastrian religion, good and evil, God and the devil, were about equal. They were engaged in a pitched battle, and angels were fighting on both sides of that battle, and we don't really know who's going to win. In fact, unless we 
line up with God and fight for God, he may not pull through this. Very different view from Christianity, which in Christianity we know who the winner is going to be. There's no question. Satan is powerful. God is all powerful. But anyway, God was considered to be a God of light. And fire was considered a sacrament. That's one of the reasons they would never burn a corpse. They would not believe in cremation because fire is a sacrament. Fire is virtually the presence of the incarnation of God himself, Ahura Mazda himself. That's another reason why if you read in the book of Daniel, you recall that Daniel is cast into, and Daniel's friends, I should say, are cast into a fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian. Well, Darius is not going to cast him into a fiery furnace because Darius is Persian, Zoroastrian, and fire is a sacrament. It would be a sacrilege to burn somebody. And so instead, he has to put Daniel in a den of lions. But anyway, because Ahura Mazda, the god of the Persians, is a god of light, they look to the stars and worship the stars in a sense because the stars are manifestations of the will of God and especially at a time when a king has died or is dying and we're wondering who the next successor is going to be we look to the stars because the stars if we understand them and interpret them right are going to reveal to us who Ahura Mazda has chosen to be the next king. That's why you have this class of priests in Persia that are known simply as the Magi, the Magoi, as you could read it in the Greek, and that we see this class that they are also in Babylon, but they seem to be more prominent in Persia, and they are called on repeatedly, you recall, by King Nebuchadnezzar. He calls on the sorcerers, you know, this is the royal cabinet, the department of sorcery, the department of magic, the department of fortune telling, and so on. That's the royal cabinet. That's the intellectual cast of the day. More about them after the break. to Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And we're talking about uh, a Christmas story, or part of the Christmas story, getting some history on, uh, I've, I've pronounced it the Magi, you pronounce it the Magi, but uh, I know exactly who you're talking about, Colonel, as soon as you mention them. True as the matter is, we don't know how they pronounced it back there in those days, either in Greece or in Persia. But the Magi were the intellectual caste, and intellectualism, as they saw it, was tied in with seeking wisdom, and we found our wisdom through the stars, because the stars were manifestations of God. God, in Zoroastrian thought, is a God of light. This is something of a distortion from Scripture. You know, even in Scripture, we certainly read a great deal about walking in the light as he is in the light. John says, in his gospel about Jesus, that he was the light of men. 
that was the true light that lighteth every man that come into the world. And you, you want to read John 1 and one of the most eloquent statements you'll ever see about the meaning of the word made flesh. But at any rate, the idea that God is light, as John says in 1 John, and in him is no darkness at all. That is, identifying light with truth and righteousness and darkness with sin and error. Well, in the Greek, literally, it says, in him there ain't no darkness, no how. And that's not good English, but it's perfectly good Greek. But the idea that God is true, uncreated light, he's much more than that. But in Zoroastrian thought, light does not just represent God. Light is God. Fire is a physical manifestation of God. And so when a king died or was dying, the royal family would turn to the Magi, this priestly caste. And the Magi would study the stars. And from the stars, they would think they would be able to determine who Ahura Mazda, the god of righteousness and light, had determined was to be the next Persian king. Now, in contrast to the Persians, in many parts of the world, you have polytheism, the worship of many gods, and as a result, you have the idea that kings are descendants of the gods, kings are gods, kings are divine, at least they have a little divine DNA somewhere in their genes. And classic work on this is Ethelbert Stauffer's book, Christ and the Caesars, one that I recommend very highly. As he says, one of the earliest longings of mankind is the longing for God to appear on earth. Egyptians and Persians, Greeks and Romans, relate mysterious myths of gods who once walked the earth in human form. In annual festivals, they celebrated the cult renewal of that mythical theophany, the epiphany of Apollo, the advent of the sun god, the birth of the heavenly child of the age, who was to lead in a new era of salvation. With ecstatic cries and hymns, they called on the god to appear. Come, and do not delay, for when the deity moves as a man among men, the dream of the ages is fulfilled, the pain of the world is scattered, and there is heaven on earth. And these longings, I would say, represent a corruption of the promise that God gave way back in Eden, a promise that he would send a Messiah, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent. And... People have distorted that over the years, but nevertheless, over the years, there have been in many societies all over the world what I would call echoes of Eden, that is, reminiscences of what God had promised, imperfect reminiscences, but they represent a corruption of this promise that God is going to send the Messiah, and in the corruption of that, people tend to look to the state instead. And if God's Messiah must be a king, and so we look to human kings as being like the Messiah. And so throughout the pagan world, 
we see deification of emperors, emperor worship. That's certainly true of the Egyptians, true of the Babylonians, the Assyrians. It is not true of the Persians at first, it becomes so later. It's not true of the Greeks, but again, later Alexander sees how in the East they have such respect for their kings that he begins to think, well, maybe I am a god, I've conquered them. And even if I'm not, wouldn't hurt for people to think I'm a god. And so the Greeks start to develop this as well. The Romans, Russell Kirk says that Rome was much too much of a Western society to ever take emperor worship seriously. But I think he ignores the fact that they would deify their emperors. But in order to become a god and be immortal, a Roman emperor had to be granted divine status by the Senate. Now, how a Senate of mortal men could make somebody an immortal god is unclear, but that at least was what the Romans later in the days of the empire claimed to believe. Now, it seems strange to us today to think about worshiping a king, worshiping a human king or government official or even worshiping the government or the state. We have been so ingrained in monotheism that the idea of that seems to us to be idolatrous, and it is. But is it really that strange today? We look to the state to supply all our needs, needs at one time we'd look to God for, we look to the state and particularly to the courts as the ultimate arbiters of truth. We look to the CDC and to Dr. Fauci as the ultimate pronouncement of what is healthy and what is safe. Are we really that far from pagan worship today? I suspect that we are moving in that direction. But the Jews were commanded very strongly against this kind of worship. We see, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verses 14 through 20. These are words that God is speaking prophetically to Moses of a day that is to come. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Now this sounds like Jewish chauvinistic nationalism, but the idea is that it's less likely to regard the king as God if he also happens to be your second cousin. And so the idea that the king is one of the people is what is being emphasized here. He goes on to say, but he shall not multiply horses to himself. That's why I only have one horse now. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that they should multiply horses. That was the source of horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. The prohibition on multiplying horses was the prohibition on cavalry for Israel because cavalry would have no value in defensive warfare. You look at Israel at the time and to the west, of course, you've got the ocean, 
seahorses might help, but not regular horses. To the east, you have the mountains where, and the north, the mountains where horses couldn't function. To the south, you have desert where they would have nothing to forage. So horses would have no value for Israel except for offensive purposes. And Israel is not to engage in offensive warfare against its enemies, defensive, yes, once the conquest is completed. But anyway, the command is that the king is to be under the law of God and is not to be a god himself. And with that, let's take a break and continue with this thing. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. You are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and you're listening on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Fascinating balance struck between the earthly and, uh, you know, the heavenly authority of of these kings as as we learn a little bit more about the uh, Magi. All right, let's look at some more here. And in the time of Jesus, of course, we see Jesus again respecting government authority but at the same time recognizing its limits. When he is asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And he asks them, show me a coin, although they think they have him here. If the answer is yes, pay taxes, his popularity in the Jerusalem poll is going to go down 90 points. If he says no, they'll go tattling on him with Roman emperors and he'll be arrested. Either way, they've gotten rid of him. But Jesus does not directly answer their question. When you're the Son of God, you don't have to. Rather, he simply says, Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. Lord Acton wrote concerning that passage, When Christ said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, he gave to the state a legitimacy it had never before enjoyed, and set bounds to it, that had never yet been acknowledged. And he delivered the precept, but he also forged the instrument to execute it, to limit the power of the state, ceased to be the hope of patient and effectual philosophers, and became the perpetual charge of a universal church. And yet, at this time, the Roman emperors are claiming the divinity for themselves. They admit coins. In fact, I could preach a whole different message on the coin here because commonly Roman coins would have all kinds of divine inscriptions. They would have pictures of the gods blessing the emperor and so on and claiming like Caesar, son of God and other things like this, Augustus, divine king and so on. And anyway, of course, the Jews wouldn't accept coins like that, because that was worshiping graven images in their view. So the tetrarchs and the Roman governors had to get special dispensation from Rome to print plainer coins with just the image of Caesar and no divine inscriptions. Otherwise, the Jews wouldn't use them. But this is the situation. We have the Messiah born into a society in which the Jews are resisting graven images but in which those around believe in divine emperors that are looking for a king to come and a king to reign because that king, in their view, will be God. And yet in the midst of this, we have these magi who are 
seeking the true king. They didn't come west to worship Augustus or Herod or anybody like that. They came west to worship the true king. Now, how would they know something about the true king? Well, let's read a little bit from the scriptures here. First of all, let's go to the Christmas story itself as it's recorded in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men, Magi, from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship them. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Well, just a few things to note here. First of all, they are coming to find the true king. Now, how would they know of this king? Well, remember, way back in the days of Daniel, Daniel in the 500s BC, Daniel had become master of the Magi as he was taken captive to Babylon and then later to Persia, he became the master of this priestly caste. And so naturally, they'd be familiar with his writings. Writings, for example, when Daniel says in chapter 9, 70 weeks, that is 70 heftahs, or seven-year periods, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem under Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, 69 weeks in other words, 69 seven-year periods. The streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Christ shall die, but not for his own sins, because he has done, but for the sins of the world. Anyway, this is the most precise prophecy we see in the Old Testament about when Christ is going to come. And it is by Daniel, the master of the Magi. These Magi, hundreds of years later, would be familiar with the writings of Daniel. And 
And so when they see in the stars, the evidence in the stars that Christ is to be born, naturally they come. Now, God does not endorse astrology, but he accommodates himself to their understanding and communicates to them in the way that they would understand. And so they see in the stars that there is to be a king who is to be born, and the star is going to lead them. The star is going to lead them to where Christ is born. Now, what is that star? Well, let's talk about that in a little bit, but there are all kinds of explanations that are given for the star. People try to give scientific explanations, and many times they do so with the very best of motives, I think, trying to prove the truth of Scripture. I don't think any of those scientific explanations can stand. Some will say the star was a meteor. Well, I've seen meteors before. You'll never see a meteor that travels as slowly as this star did to be able to lead them for a period of time across the heavens and across the desert. And then, after being over Jerusalem, then suddenly reverse course and go to the southeast toward Bethlehem. No meteor could do that. Likewise, no comet could do that. Comet would move more slowly. A comet could be in the sky for a longer period of time, but it's not going to reverse course and do even sharper than a 90-degree turn to the left and start leading to the southeast after having led west to Jerusalem. No comet could do that. It couldn't be a heliacal rising, as some have tried to explain it, that is a planetary conjunction that would be especially brilliant at sunrise. None of those explanations make sense. What the star is, is a miracle of God. I would suggest to you that the star is not simply something that the, is sent by the Holy Spirit to lead us to Christ. I would suggest rather that the star is a theophonic appearance of God in the Holy Spirit leading us to Christ. And I don't think any other explanation of the star makes sense. There are those who tried to see evidence in the heavens of stars that might have appeared around that time or comets. Some have tried to say based on that that maybe the Magi came from even further east than Persia. Some have tried to say that the star that they came from China because the Chinese recorded a comet at that time. Others have said maybe the star even came from Korea. Again, that could be far-fetched, I'd say, but Korean Christians have tried to give that interpretation. Some have said Yemen. That would be more to the south, though, although there was a dynasty of Jewish kings that reigned over Yemen around that time. But no, I'll have to say the star was a theophonic appearance of the Holy Spirit, and a miracle of God. You are listening to 
Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, this is a this is a side of the Christmas story that uh, I'm very uh, very much enjoying as as you uh, fill us in on some of the details of some of the lesser known stories. Well, let's get back to what the scriptures have to say about this, because there are many who will say that the Magi were not present on Christmas, at Christmas Eve, that they came a long time later. After all, it would have taken them a long time to prepare for a journey like this, and it would take them probably several months to cross the desert and get over there from Persia to Jerusalem and then Bethlehem. And Yes, that is true. However, God could have had the star appear to them well in advance to lead them on this journey, and I believe he did. But others will say that, no, Jesus would have been several years old by the time the Magi came. Again, I think that is unlikely. You remember that Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is up in the area of Galilee, north about 60-some miles north of Jerusalem. That's where Joseph lived. That's where Mary lived. And anyway, by a decree of Caesar Augustus, they are commanded to go to their place of ancestry to be registered for taxation. And their place of ancestry is Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is way down in the south. You go 60-some miles south to Jerusalem and then about seven miles further southeast to Bethlehem. And so they are there at Bethlehem, not in their regular home. Now, the likelihood is they're not going to stay in Bethlehem very long. They'll probably stay till the time of the circumcision, eight days later, maybe an additional month or so for Mary's purification, although even that is open to some question. But the likelihood that they would be in Bethlehem longer than eight days is, I think, very unlikely. And so the Magi must have visited Jesus in those early days. Now, also, some will say, well, maybe they didn't go to Bethlehem. Maybe they went to Nazareth. But the, according to the account here, they came to Jerusalem. They inquired, based on the scripture, Herod tells them he is to be born in Bethlehem. And so we read, he sent them to Bethlehem. Now, the natural reading of this would be that they went to Bethlehem. If there was something to change that, that they changed their minds and went to Nazareth, the scripture would say that. Because it doesn't say that. Again, the natural assumption from this is that they go to Bethlehem and they worship Jesus there in Bethlehem. And again, in all probability, they would not have, that is, Mary and Joseph and baby would not have stayed in Bethlehem beyond eight days. And so I have to conclude that the Magi came within eight days of Jesus' birth. And I see no reason to think that it couldn't have been right on the very day that Jesus was born, and that there in that, him in the stable there with the baby lying in this manger, but there in that wider stable scene, besides the ox and the donkeys and so on, and Mary and Joseph. Besides that, 
you have the shepherds who have been led to the scene by the angel Gabriel and by a company, a host of the angels. And so they have come. <clears throat> and then you have the magi. Now, the magi and the shepherds come for different reasons. The shepherds have been told by an angel. And they say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place. There's, they're going to seek. The Magi are coming to worship. Why? The Magi, sometimes we call them the kings. They probably aren't kings. They're probably members of the royal cabinet. And Tertullian says, for example, they were well nigh kings, no, nearly kings. They were king makers, choosers of the kings. But this represents two different things, I think. With the shepherds, you have the commoners, how Christ is Lord of the common man. And the common man comes to see Jesus. The magi represent that Christ is also Lord of the nations. And interestingly enough, Mary is there, Joseph is there, the shepherds are there. But in all of the scripture dealing with the birth of Christ, the only ones that we are told come to worship him and actually worship him are the Magi. That raises an interesting question. Why would these Magi come all this distance to worship? Couldn't they worship from where they were? Yes, they could. But they felt impelled that they wanted to be there to worship this Messiah who was to be king and who was to be much more than a king. And not only were they there to worship, but they were there to give respect, homage, and to demonstrate that he is, in fact, Lord of the nations, that he is not just king, he is the king of kings. But here's something else. They have come in the middle of what is going to be a great period of instability because as Rome becomes an empire, the state becomes demonic, as we may see the state becoming demonic today. Stauffer explains, and this sounds very typical of what we read with Persia some 500 years earlier, the triumph of the city of God was to be reached by the self-exaggeration and self-destruction of the city of the world. The self-exaggeration and self-destruction of the classical advent of philosophy was completed in the third century AD, that is the 200s. This is the century of which the schoolboy knows nothing because no young mind can bear the knowledge of what happened then. It was the century of the assassination of emperors of the sarcophagi, the dance of death, of the systematic persecution of Christians, the century of twisted systematic titles, Magnus, Maximus, Maximinus, Magnentius, Maxentius, Maximianus, Maximilianus, are the names given to themselves by those who wanted to be accounted important. In these centuries, the political eschatology on which men have been nourished for thousands of years ran amok in the Roman world. 
About the year 260, Galenia struck a coin with the inscription, the genius of the Roman people has entered the capital of the empire. This patron spirit was incarnated himself, the emperor Galenius. In this same decade, the imperial genius was murdered. In the year 275, Aurelian was celebrated as God and Lord from birth. In the same year, the divine Lord was murdered. The following year, Probus ascended the blood-girt throne and struck a series of coins with the famous inscription, Adventus Augusta, and the portrait of the emperor riding with his hand raised in greeting and blessing, led by the goddess Victoria. In the year 282, Probus was murdered. In 287, a coin of the emperor Carausius appeared, and on it we see Britannia greeting the empire as he arrived from the continent, and with the advent greeting, Expectate Waini, come thou long for one. In the Advent hymn, the words are, Thou long of all the world. Carousius was subsequently murdered. And so on. State worship, state instability, and among all of this intrigue, all of this carnage, Christ is born in a Bethlehem stable. Christ grows as a humble child in Nazareth. He lived and taught and served among men. He died on a Roman cross. His enemies thought they had conquered him, but there he paid the atoning price for the sins of the world, washing away forever the sins the emperors could only imperfectly restrain. And there he established his kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, but that will endure forever. And we think of him then as king of kings and lord of lords. And we think how these wise men were wise indeed. We don't know how much they understood about the nature of Christ's redemption, but we know they made wise choices. They passed by the Caesars of the day, the Herods of their day, and they came to worship the newborn king. They came because they felt impelled to do so. We need to go to worship, not just worship in our homes. They could have worshiped in Persia, but they felt impelled to go to worship impersonally. We are commanded in the book of Hebrews, to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. We should go to church, especially on Christmas, and worship the newborn king. Venite adoremus dominum. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Merry Christmas.